You know it, we're back. Yet another episode of Not Related, the biggest brain podcast out there, and yet another hour of internal monologue to cloud up the brains of all you NPCs out there. So congratulations. We are back. I took a hiatus of around a month. As you may know, I was out of town. I was doing other stuff, busy with this and that or the other, and I didn't have time to record an episode, but I am back. And after all these weeks, well, you know what? For today's episode, I hope you have your fedora ready, because we're about to tip them, because we're talking about reason, logic, rationality. What do those terms actually mean? What do they mean in our brain? Are they actually the greatest things in the world, or are they actually cringe and blue-pilled? That's what we're going to talk about in this episode. Now, the main book I want to focus on for this episode, I may have mentioned this to some of you, is a book called Rationality for Mortals, and this is by Gert Gigerenzer. Uh, it's an interesting enough book, and we'll probably come back to this book later on in another episode, because I think it's actually, I don't want to call it a disorganized book, but it touches on a lot of different topics. And one of them, as the title suggests, is, in fact, rationality. Now, in order to actually talk about the argument of this book, I have to give a lot of, uh, I guess, prep. You, you have to know how the field of cognitive science approaches issues like human rationality before we even understand what this book is actually about. So I'm going to do that first. But I, I should go ahead and do the introductions. I, as always, am Luke Smith. And if you have any questions or comments about this episode, email me at luke at lukesmith.xyz. If you have a donation, I will read it out on the next episode. PayPal.me slash LukeMSmith. That's M as in methodical. And as always, we'll go a little bit, then we'll read donations and comments from the last episode, and then we'll continue this episode. So now, as I said, Rationality for Mortals, that's one book. That's the main book I want to touch on, or the main idea at least the first portion of this book. There's more goodness in it, but uh, the first por person portion of this book deals with rationality, but also books you may have heard of that you may want to have on hand if you know what they're about. Uh, one recent book is Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. Now, Rationality for Mortals, if you're at all familiar with Daniel Kahneman or his partner in crime, uh, Amos Tversky, the late Amos Tversky, they have been very influential people in the field of psychology or cognitive science, and Garrett Gingerenzer's book is a response to them. Now, if you don't know anything about any of these guys, that's fine. We'll, we'll go over them. But Thinking Fast and Slow is a book by Daniel Kahneman that you might want to, uh, that I might make allusions to because it's a summation of their views. Uh, additionally, I might mention later on a book by Jerry Fodor and Massimo Piatelli Palmarini, and that is What Darwin Got Wrong. We'll talk about that later, but uh, if you want the reading list, just check the video description or the comments on this file, and you will get all the books and articles that I'll mention. Now, anyway, let's, let's talk about the field of cognitive science or psychology generally in the 20th century. Now, one of the most important things that happened in the post-war era was a, a sea change brought about partially by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. Now, I mentioned Kahneman's book just a bit ago. It's more recent, but this goes back into the 70s or 80s. Now, Kahneman and Tversky, they were Israeli-American psychologists. Well, they were more than psychologists. They, they touched on a whole bunch of different fields. And they popularized what's called the heuristics and biases approach which deals with heuristics and biases, but is a little bit more. Now, Kahneman and Tversky's general view of human psychology is as follows. That is, there's what we can call system one in cognition and system two. Now, what do these terms mean? Now, system one for them, the idea behind it is the human mind is not one big logical machine. It's actually made up of a bunch of little systems. And system one, the term is supposed to designate the idea that there are many different small heuristics, biases, algorithms in our brain that make quick judgments. And so system one is a set of varied and small mental shortcuts in our brain, and they help us make quick conclusions. They help us react and respond to stimuli in an economical way. So if you're walking on the street and you see someone, you know, maybe a little out of your field of view, uh, maybe you might have bad feelings about this person. And that is because your system one has this ability to maybe quickly look at someone's clothes and make judgments, immediately make judgments about them without thinking too much about it. 
Now that's the idea behind system one. System two, or system one is a, a set of small mental shortcuts and we'll talk about some of these as we go on. Uh, but the idea behind it is system one is quick thinking but doesn't necessarily think very well. And that is opposed to what's called system two. Now system two is a method of thought that you can think of as being slow, sometimes too slow, but it is logical, it's rational, and it converges on what is usually the right answer. Now, sometimes people will use the term, instead of log logic or reason or something like that, they'll use the term optimization. And this means something very specific. That is, optimization is that mental process where you are deliberating, you're consciously deliberating something, you're uh, assessing multiple different variables, you're trying to make the best conclusion, a good reasoned conclusion. And this is sort of what system two is. So the contrast again, system one is fast, sometimes inaccurate, but often accurate enough. But system one is a, a set of different biases or heuristics to make quick judgments. Whereas system two is what we can think of as being reason or logic or again, optimization. It's a slow way of thinking, but tends to converge on the correct answer. So in the example I said just a second ago, your system one might see someone far away and sort of judge them to be maybe taking off cues from their uh, their stature or their disposition or what they're wearing tell you that that's not a very trustworthy person. Maybe if you get a little closer and you read them out, uh, if System 2 analyzing uh, analyzes them, they might not be so so bizarre and you might overcome what System one's, 1 says. But the general idea behind Kahneman and Tversky's account of human cognition is that we are not, we're not unified in our thinking. There are many different mental algorithms and they tend to sort themselves into system one and system two that is fast and inaccurate versus very slow but tends to be more accurate and that's the idea behind it now with this general distinction between system one and system two Kahneman and Tversky actually start a kind of cottage industry of experiments to tease out the differences between them and a lot of the experiments that they do is looking for what can be called cognitive illusions that is, they are looking for us situations where we erroneously use system one, where we should be using system two. And a lot of our cognition is following the erroneous biases of system one down the garden path to make bad conclusions. Now, let's talk about some of the ideas behind it. Or actually, we'll give you a couple um, basic examples. Now, one question that you hear a lot in introductory psychology classes and has appeared in many experiments is the following question, and I'll ask it to you. Let's say you go to the store and you buy a baseball bat and a baseball, and together they cost $1.10, and the baseball bat costs $1 more than the baseball. Well, how much do each of them cost? So the first system one response to that is to say, well, maybe you you might want to pause and think about it if you want, but again, together they cost $1.10, and the baseball bat costs a dollar more than the baseball. How much did each cost? Now, the first reaction that people usually have is to say, oh, well, the, the baseball, uh, or excuse me, yeah, the baseball, uh, it costs 10 cents, and the baseball bat costs a dollar. But when you really think about that, well, the difference between those is not, in fact, a dollar. It's 90 cents. Your first reaction is to look at that $1.10 and say, okay, I can divide that into $1.10. And, and that feels like it's about the distinction that I need and just run with that. Now, in reality, the answer is the baseball costs five cents and the baseball bat costs $1 more than that, which is $1 and five cents. That is the correct answer to it, but that is not something that you will have unless you really sit down and think about it, or maybe if you even write out an equation and solve it, because it's very counterintuitive. So again, this is one of these examples where you can show it to someone in a class, and they'll immediately say, okay, well, duh, the baseball bat, that's a dollar, and the baseball itself, that's 10 cents. That feels right, like the right division. That is an answer given to you by system one, by this heuristic system that's just saying, okay, well, this is probably that and that's probably this. That's your first reaction. But that reaction is very hard to overcome, uh, but it still isn't true. 
Uh, it's one of the, the erroneous things that uh, you know, this kind of cognitive bias can lead you to. Now, it's very easy to pull this kind of cognitive trick on people, or there are many others that you can pull. Um, now, back when I was in economics, this is something that people talked about all the time. Uh, people are very bad at statistics, for example. That's something they don't have a good intuitive understanding of. And one question, let's actually have, this is something that Kahneman and Tversky's team of people do on occasion as well. Uh, let's say we ask people, what do you think the chances are of X person being elected in the 2020 U.S. presidential elections are? Uh, let's say, you know, we go up to Billy Bob on the street and ask him, what do you think the chance of the percentage chance of Donald Trump being reelected in 2020 are? You know, maybe he'll say 40%, maybe he'll say 60%, 80%, 100%, who knows, some percentage. Uh, okay, that's fine. And then ask him, what do you think the chances are of uh, Hillary Clinton being elected? Okay, maybe she won't run, maybe she won't make it through the primary, maybe people are tired of her, uh, but she might have a 15% chance or something like that. And then you ask, you know, any other Joe Biden or Cory Booker, or I, I, Elizabeth Warren, you know, all these different people. You go through the whole line of Democratic candidates or Republican candidates or independent candidates, and you take all of their percentages. And if you think about it, if hypothetically people were rational, perfectly rational, all those percentages should add up to 100 because it wouldn't make sense to say that, you know, Donald Trump has an 80% chance of winning and, you know, Elizabeth Warren has a 40% chance of winning. That's more than 100%. That doesn't make sense. But this is something that people in real life do all the time. They, when you are trying to determine percentages, you don't really think of it in terms of, you know, chances out of 100 or something like that. That's just not how it happens. So whenever people are dealing with percentages, they, their cognition just breaks down. They give a number that feels good to their system, one, but it's not like they've thought it through analytically and done all this thinking behind it. It's just something that happens. Now, additionally, another thing you can do is what's called priming. This is something that Kahneman and Tversky talk about all the time. Uh, one implementation that you see in behavioral economics experiments all the time is, let's say you sit someone down and you're going to ask them what a bunch of things should cost or how much they would pay for particular products. But before you do that, you tell them to write down the last four digits of their social security number or some other kind of identification number. And one thing you find is once you have them do that and then you ask them, how much should this washing machine cost? How much should this car cost? Uh, how much should this or that cost? You see that depending, people will, if people have a social security number that is bigger, let's say starts with nine or eight or something like that, they'll tend to give bigger answers for how much things should cost. So, you know, let's say you, you ask them how much a washing machine would cost. Someone who has a, a social security number whose last four digits start in nine, they're more likely to say something around 9,000. Whereas someone who has a social security number that starts around two or something like that, they would be more likely to say something around 2,000, right? This is an elementary trick. It is the easiest thing in the book. And keep in mind your social security number, it's not like you're adjusting it to another price. You've just been primed by a random number, not totally random, but it's you know something that has nothing to do with the price and you are affected by it in your decision-making. And this is, so again, Kahneman and Tversky start this cottage industry of people doing experiments like this, where you give people questions that is outside of the realm of you know normal life, and you find very quickly that the heuristics and biases that they rely on to make these decisions break down extremely quickly. I will say that if you ever start your own business, you need to know about priming because it is an elementary trick that everyone takes advantage of. Put big numbers out there. Put big numbers on menu items that you don't even expect to sell because even if you don't sell them, they're going to make everything else look cheaper. That is trick number one. So just bear that in mind. Actually, come to think of it, let's put it this way. Let's say I put PayPal donation buttons on my website. Now that I think of this, I should actually do this. And here's what I do. I have one donation button that says donate $20, one that says donate $100, one that says, you know, donate $1,000, et cetera, et cetera. Now, 
no one might ever donate to the a thousand dollars button because you know maybe that's just too much but when they see that button donating twenty dollars does not seem like such a price they'll be like oh that's that's nice and cheap i will donate more money so it might be just by putting bigger numbers out there it makes all the other numbers seem quite smaller so that's just a trick for you to remember you know if i were more of a shill i would do that right now i'm tempted to but you know Anyway, so Kahneman and Tversky's account, their general heuristics and biases program, found not just particular biases in, you know, framing and priming and stuff like this, but a, a lot of specific ones that we're not going to be able to go over. Now, for example, people have a tendency to overestimate the chance of highly unlikely events. I think everyone understands that people overestimate the chance of a plane crash, for example. Those are very unlikely events. You know, people will always say, okay, technically you're more likely to die in a car than you are on a plane, yada, yada, yada. That's statistically true. But people have a tendency to still feel like, okay, well, you know, planes are very dangerous or, you know, things like uh, diabetes kills lots and lots of people. People underestimate the danger of diabetes. They overestimate the mortal danger of terrorism. Now, in Kahneman and Tversky's view, that is because... They are not rational. They're not thinking. There's a bias that says, let's overestimate the chance of unlikely things and underestimate the risk of more likely things. That's just some a bias with its finger on the scale in our brain. Uh, and there are other similar effects. One is called the hard easy effect. You may have heard of this. This is the idea that people have a tendency when they're given a really difficult problem, they'll usually overestimate their ability to solve it or they'll think it's less difficult than it actually is. Whereas if they're given a problem that's very easy, sometimes they'll be a little a bit more doubtful as to if they can solve it or not. Like I don't know, it might be it's probably uh, you know or, or another to put it another way, things are either less hard or less easy than they uh, first seem. That's a bias that people have. And so Kahneman and Tversky's program over the course of decades has accumulated many of these different heuristics and biases that people rely on that drive us further and further away from what they think of as being rational, logical thinking, optimization. Now, I hope you have a good enough view of the heuristics and biases program. Again, system one, quick, intuitive decisions. There are a bunch of mental modules that give you just quick reactions to things without having to do much thought about them. Oftentimes they give you wrong answers, like in the case of the baseball bat and the baseball, or in other examples. They often give you bad examples, but here, system one isn't all bad. It is very quick, and a lot of times it can save, I mean, if someone swings a bat at your face, you're not going to want to sit there and think, is this actually going to cause damage? Maybe I should react to this. No, you just want system one to, to tell you to get down, get out of the way. That's the good of system one for Kahneman and Tversky. System two, on the other hand, that is your rational faculties. That is your higher level decision making that all of us non-NPCs have. And the idea for Kahneman and Tversky is ideally system two is the one that's converging on the right answers. It's just a little slower. It's not quite as good as system one in speed. So we have to play, you know, we have system two, which is accurate and system one that is fast. And we have to play off when we use one or the other. And most of their program is again, a study of when we use one versus the other, when is it best to use one versus the other, et cetera, et cetera. Now, at this point, I want the walls of the heuristics and biases program to show a little static in the matrix, so to speak, because Kahneman and Tversky have their view of human cognition, but that's not the whole story. And again, Gerd Gigerenser's book is a response, a rejoinder to the implicit assumptions of the heuristics and biases approach. Now, I'm going to give you one more example of a quote-unquote faulty heuristic that we use and then a, an explanation as we go into Gerd Gigerenzer's book in the next half hour. So there's one other bias called the representativeness bias, or sometimes called the conjunction fallacy in this case. Now, I'll just give you the example that, you know, people give um, or experimenters give experiment participants in the lab and see what you think about it. So here, here's the prompt to the question. Here, here's the background. Linda is 31 years old, single, outspoken, and very bright. She majors in philosophy. As a student, 
She was deeply concerned with issues of discrimination and social justice, and also participated in anti-nuclear demonstrations. Now, hearing that background, which of the following two statements is more probable? Statement A. Linda is a bank teller. Statement B. Linda is a bank teller and is active in the feminist movement. Now, you might already see where the problem is if you're thinking about it, but I'll, I'll, uh, I'll explain this for you. Now, the first System 1 reaction that I think most people will have is to say, okay, well, Linda's a bank teller and she's active in the feminist movement. We just had a background, you know, we heard her little profile, she's inter interested in social justice, yada, yada. You expect her to be a feminist or something like that. So that would feel like the right answer. But in if you're thinking about this in terms of formal logic, instead of, remember, choice A is Linda is a bank teller. Choice B is Linda is a bank teller and active in the feminist movement. If you want to put that in formal logic, it's like proposition X versus proposition X and proposition Y or something like that. If you think about it this way, if you don't pay, don't pay attention to the semantics of what it all means, when you think about it, in all the cases where the second statement, statement B, is true, statement A is true. For example, in every world where Linda is a bank teller and is active in the feminist movement, it's also the case that she is a bank teller. And the reverse isn't true. There are plenty of possible universes where Linda is a bank teller, uh, but she isn't a feminist. Now, to put it another way, it is logically impossible for statement B to be uh, true, or excuse me, for, yeah, statement B to be true and statement A not to be true, which means in essence, in this circumstance, statement A is always more probable. It's always more likely for Linda to be a bank teller than it is for Linda to be a bank teller and active in the feminist movement. You're just throwing on something else, which although it might seem representative of Linda, it doesn't make it more likely. So this Cognitive illusion or cognitive bias is something that Kahneman and Tversky go into in, uh, pretty deeply. And there are different explanations for it. Uh, but I, I want to, again, show you the, the kind of static in the walls of the matrix here. Now, as a linguist or someone who works in linguistics, one thing that will appear to you very quickly when you look at this quote-unquote bias is that even though statement A is Linda is a bank teller, there's something implicit in these two options. That is, if statement two is Linda is a bank teller and is active in a feminist movement, when you hear the first option, that, that is, Linda's, Linda's just a bank teller, it sort of feels like, well, Linda's just a bank teller. There's nothing else. She's not a feminist. In fact, people will read these two options as option A is Linda is a non-feminist bank teller, whereas they'll read the second one as Linda is a feminist bank teller. That's implicitly what, something that people automatically do. Now, you could say that this is a kind of bias, and you know that it would make sense to describe it as that, but it'd be a little weird if, we, if that's a bias that we didn't have. Because in real life, that's how we actually use language. We don't explicitly say everything. We leave some things unsaid. And when people read this particular problem, they're actually reading it too smart. They're thinking, they're automatically making the assumption that her being a bank teller precludes her being a bank teller and a feminist, especially where the, when the second option says specifically that she is a feminist. So that must mean that the first option, you know, she isn't a feminist, right? So this is one example where, now Kahneman and Tversky are aware of this argument as well. They address it in their own ways. You can read their articles about it. But I, I, I want to leave you with the idea as we go into the break, that there's a sense in which we're making a logically irrational choice here. We're saying something that in terms of formal logic cannot be true. But in real life, it's sort of, is, that's how we use language. That's what these terms actually, that's what these two options actually mean. If I just say Linda is a bank teller, and then on the other hand, Linda's a bank teller and a feminist. Well, saying that Linda's just a bank teller sort of implies that she is not a feminist in that option. That's a, that is a implicature that is always there in actual human language. So although we are abiding by this bias in the real use of language outside of the, experiment, uh, the experimental circumstances, in, outside of the lab, so to speak, 
uh, it's a bias that's getting us a good thing. We're making the correct assumptions about how people use language or how logic is used in the wild. So I think we've reached about half an hour. And again, we're going to get into Gerd Gigerinzer's response to this or the general idea. Uh, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to come back, read some donations, read some responses from our last episode, which, oh man, it seems like so long ago. But yeah, we, we will do it. That was on the agricultural revolution. And uh, so I'll be back in just one minute. So I'll see you guys then. All right, welcome back, everyone. So I want to go through the donations that we've gotten. There are actually a lot since I haven't done an episode in quite a while. So it's about a month's worth. And also a lot of people sent in specifically birthday donations, which, of course, I'm still accepting. Of So paypal.me slash Luke M. Smith. That's M as in Mencken, as in H.L. Mencken. I don't know. Well, there's a Mencken book right next to me. That's why I thought of it. Um, anyway, so let's read out the donations. $5 from Aaron L. Belated birthday donation. You got me interested in Linux again. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. Uh, $5 from Kui Boutique. $5 on Patreon from Nis S. $5 on Patreon from Brad B. $5 on Patreon from Robert S. And again, that's patreon.com. Or slash Luke Smith, I think. I'm pretty sure that's me. <laughs> um, $5 from Antonio K. For Uncle Luke's GNU slash cabin. Spend it wisely. Thank you. £20 from Robert R. $10 from Douglas C. €10 Euros from Ivo S. €10 Euros from Raf G. $2 from Dominic Z. Ten or twenty dollars from Stephen Smith. Happy birthday wishes from another Smith. Thank you. And twenty-five dollars from Jeremy B, who says the not related podcast is fantastic. It's like political science without the politics. All other political podcasters just piss me off because of the constant strawman. I came here for the Arch installation guide, then subscribed for the general use bash tips. Thank you for some awesome content and LARBs. Well, thank you, Jeremy. Um, Ten dollars from Christian F who recommended me to read Ishmael by Daniel Quinn, which I did read. I think I responded to this on the live stream, but I actually used his money to buy this book. It's very excellent. Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. Maybe I'll talk about it later, but it's definitely worth reading. And uh, $10 from Ashveen M. And $10 in Bitcoin from Ryan P. And I think that's about everyone. I'm, if there's someone I'm missing, you can nag me about about it and i will read it in the next episode but that uh again that was a lot of donations don't worry i'm not actually that that rich guys it's just that's a whole month's worth um, but again if you want to send in any comments with donations uh paypal.me slash luke m smith m as in i already said mencken but uh, yeah i always i always feel like I, the, I don't know mind as in mind's eye i don't know Anyway, so that's the donations. Let's get back into the content. Thank you, everyone. So where did we leave off? We were just talking about the fact that in the case of Linda the Feminist Bank Teller, sometimes we reach, strictly speaking, illogical conclusions using our heuristics. But those illogical conclusions happen for a reason. There's a reason that we make the assumption that saying Linda is a bank teller precludes her being a feminist. Uh, there's a reason that that happens in real life because that's how we actually use language. Now, one seed of doubt that you can sow with the Heuristics and Biases program is that while they often attempt to show how irrational people are, it's often the case that those alleged irrationalities are really just us using very rational heuristics, even if we, even if they don't involve deep cognition behind them, but we'll we'll say very wise heuristics, very useful ones. But trying to Kahneman and Tversky, in essence, are trying to misuse them in experimental circumstances. Now, one uh, example that I've used, and actually others people have used it nowadays, because I know Nassim Taleb used this example in his most recent book. Um, it's the example of, you know, let's say we had a, a kind of heuristics and biases program, but for ocular sciences, that is, people who studied the eye, ophthalmologists, however you want to call them. What, in essence, their view would be is that our eyes are irrational. So when we see things, we don't actually see them how they truly are. You know, one thing you learn very quickly is that all solid substances out there, really, they're mostly air. They're mostly space. There's nothing there, but we perceive them for some reason as being solid. So in that sense, our eyes are lying to us. 
or our eyes show us color. Color doesn't really exist in the external world. It's just an internal representation we have of different wavelengths of life. But in essence, color doesn't really exist. Our eyes are being irrational. They're lying to us. Now, you could come to the table with that kind of approach, but one thing you have to realize is the, the quote-unquote lies that our eyes tell us are happening for a reason. The reason we perceive walls as being truly solid with no space in between them is because they behave like that. If we walk up to them and try to walk through a wall, it's not going to work. Even though a wall is still mostly empty space, we can't just walk through it. So we, we perceive it as being totally solid. Now, in the same way, you can think of our system one as being the exact same thing. That is, it th does things which are on paper in formal logic. Uh, it does things that are very irrational in those terms, that are illogical. You can make logical deductions as for why Linda is a bank teller is a much more probable statement than Linda is a feminist bank teller. You can make deductions for why that is true. But in real life, in actual usage, our irrational heuristics are actually better suited for our environment. Now on to Gerd Gegerenzer's book. Again, Rationality for Mortals, subtitle is How People Cope with Uncertainty. Now, in his book, he proposes what is called ecological rationality. Now, in this understanding, contrast this with the heuristics and biases approach. In the view of someone who's a proponent of ecological rationality, we have heuristics. And heuristics can be a bunch of little mental modules, mental conclusions. Uh, you have just a whole bunch of these things that have evolved for X, Y, Z reasons. They're all part of our mental repertoire. And in real life, what happens is that as you grow up, as you're exposed to exter external stimuli, you learn to use one or the other of those heuristics to solve problems. You get things done. It's not exactly the same thing as Kahneman and Fersky's view. Uh, in fact, there's uh, what's, what's called an adaptive toolbox of heuristics in the ecological rationality approach. It's not now Kahneman and Tversky, They have the view that when you're addressing some kind of problem, there is a bias or a heuristic that is a finger on the scale that is harming your decision making in some way, which would otherwise be rational. Now. In the ecological rationality view, uh, this is the idea that instead of, you know, there is no set way to solve a problem. Instead of what happened, instead of that, what happens is that we have this adaptive toolbox of different heuristics that we can use for particular problems. And we usually, over time, we learn to use which one is appropriate for one problem or the other. Now, what this entails contrary to the view of system one in the heuristics and biases approach, uh, someone like Gerd Gigerenzer, their view is that in general, in real life, our heuristics are actually very effective. In fact, they're not just very effective, they're often preferable for uh, preferable to optimization, to thinking things out, because we have learned which heuristics are appropriate. The reason that uh, Kahneman and Tversky get all of these experimental results where people do irrational things is ultimately because they are putting people into novel circumstances where they have not learned the correct tool to use. Instead, they're using tools that are proper for the real world, where there is uncertainty, where there are differences, where there are variables you can't control for. And sometimes they end up doing things that might be in some logical term irrational. At that, before we go into the specifics, I want to make one minor note about logic and reason more general, or specifically formal logic as it exists. Now, in the 20th century, for different sociological reasons, some very strange things have happened. And there are a lot of fields, I mean, economics, linguistics, psychology, uh, there are a lot of, sometimes even mathematics, there are a lot of fields who have taken under the wing some very bizarre assumptions. And you have to remember that during the early 20th century, there is a particular thing called formal logic that arose and became very popular. This is the thing you learn in Psychology 101, where you have, you know, logical priors, assumptions, and then you work out, you derive new statements and stuff like this from, you know, your logical priors, there are logical operators, if P, then Q, stuff like this. 
I expect a lot of you are familiar with this kind of stuff. There is the idea that is out there that this is the truest of true logic. There is no other kind. This We have discovered logic when we developed this formalism. That's all it is. It's a formalism for, in, a, in essence, annotating. It's a formal system that is supposed to be coherent, and it does its own thing. But a lot of people make the assumptions that if you work within a logical system, that you are you know, divining some kind of divine truth. Now, in reality, even a good, good philosopher, a good proponent of formal logic will understand that you know, garbage in, garbage out. If you base your logical derivation on bad priors, if you don't take into account the proper vari relevant variables or uncertainty in real life, formal logic doesn't actually mean that much. But there are a lot of people, and Kahneman and Tversky, I don't want to say they, you know, they are totally unthinking in reference to this, because I'm sure, I'm sure they do think about things like this. Um, but there's a tendency for people to take, uh, I guess, uh, generalizations from formal logic or sometimes Bayesian statistics and think of them as being the truest of truth realities and everything else. If we fail to reach the standard of formal logic, we must be doing something wrong. It's not that this model can be off reality. It's not that this model could be, you know, a little miscalibrated or we're using it improperly. There's this somewhat strange assumption that the model has to be the truest of true things. And again, this is something, you know, when I was in economics, this is people, uh, something that people do uh, and they make a lot of mistakes because of it. In some realms of linguistics, people talk of formal logic as being how humans process semantics, which is, I mean, it's an interesting enough model of how we process semantics, but that's not how our brains uh, learn things or process information or anything like that. So I know a lot of you out there who are a little more on the autiste spectrum, you might have a lot of emotional attachment to this formalism of formal logic, but just make sure you understand that it is not the truest of true things. And one of the points with of the distinction between ecological rationality and the heuristics and biases program is that Gigerinser is going to make, again, the subtitle of his book is how people cope with uncertainty. And when you take into account uncertainty, that you have to remember that a perfectly logical person is going to do things that look very illogical when you have uncertainties that cannot be accounted for in your formal system. Now, I've talked a little abstractly, so let's actually get into the specifics of what I mean. Gigerinzer actually lists out on one of, I think it's, uh, let me open up the book here. I want to say page 11, no, page 14 and page 15. And this is a good resource if you're interested, if you've never heard of the ecological rationality field. He goes through a lot of the biases that Kahneman and Tversky talk about, and he cites a lot of research that has gone into those biases and found that in many ways in real life, when people are actually using these heuristics to reach conclusions that Kahneman and Tversky might think of as being erroneous, they're actually doing things that make perfect sense given the different, the uncertainty in real life. Uh, let's just go through a couple examples here. So for example, we actually mentioned earlier, people have a tendency to overestimate the likelihood of very unlikely events, again, like planes crashing, and they underestimate higher risks. So this is something that Kahneman and Tversky think of as being something irrational. Now, in real life, when you are thinking, should I go out, it's really stormy, you overestimate the chance of you being killed by a storm, statistically speaking, and that is quote-unquote irrational. But in real life, what your brain, in essence, is doing is it is regressing toward the mean. It is making the assumption that the information that you know about the world is flawed. It's uncertain. There are things that you don't know, and you have, you're in an, an environment of unsystem or non-systematic error. So you have been exposed to only part of the pie, and an assumption, one thing that follows from that is that, okay, the statistical judgments I can make about the world, those aren't really accurate. So these things that are high, extremely statistically unlikely, they're probably actually more likely than that to occur. Now, in the same way, there are things that are highly overrepresented, and it might just be that I have been exposed to a, a segment of the world that is not representative of the actual statistical reality. So 
our irrational heuristics, our irrational biases do something which is actually a, a very prudent uh, solving for information asymmetry. We don't understand the world purely. Instead, we process it through these heuristics that actually account for the fact that we don't know about the world. Now again, in a sterile laboratory setting where there everything has a precise statistical existence and you have to follow that rigid logical structure to be rational if you are doing an experiment with Kahneman and Tversky. In that situation, you can say, ha, well, you are doing something that is bad, statistically speaking. You are overestimating this highly unlikely event. That's true in an experimental circumstance, but in real life, that's not how it is. We don't know about the world external to us. We don't know about it, and we have to correct for our own errors. That's in the same vein as the hard, easy effect that we mentioned earlier, right? So that is when you overestimate the difficulty of easy things and underestimate the difficulty of hard things. And that actually is a wise thing to do, considering that whatever your knowledge of the world is at any point in time, chances are it's incomplete. And as you are exposed to more and more information, whatever probabilities you give to things in the real world, they will regress towards the mean, regress towards the average. So difficult things, you know, more difficult things will seem less difficult, less difficult things will seem more difficult till everything is right around, you know, the mean or whatever. Now, of course, that doesn't mean everything is equally difficult, but it just means your information at any given point in time is incomplete, and it's probably going to be less irregular the more you learn about something. So from the perspective of someone into ecological rationality, the whole heuristics and biases program becomes like a big joke that experimenters are playing on subjects. That is, they will take a normal human with good heuristics calibrated to the real world. They will put them in some kind of experiment. They will give them questions that their heuristics have not been calibrated to deal with. So they'll create bad answers. They'll do very poorly on particular tests. And then you say, aha, well, people are actually stupid. The brain is broken. System one is terrible. And we should rely more on system two. Now, System 1 and System 2 don't exist per se. Well, it depends, it depends on your interpretation, but uh, Gerd Gigerenzer doesn't necessarily have the same view of System 2 as Kahneman and Tversky do. Now, first off, one thing you need to realize is there's a tendency for people to overestimate the presence of logic in the brain. Or not just logic, I want to use that in a more general sense. Higher level cognition or something that looks like very complex behavior isn't necessarily always that complex. Uh, you know, one example, there's a, a quote that uh, Gigerenzer quotes from Richard Dawkins as a very good example of sort of attributing to the mind a little bit more than it actually deserves or or maybe less, depending on the interpretation. I'm going to read this quote. This is from uh, Richard Dawkins. I think this is from The Selfish Gene, 1976, I think. Uh, when a man throws a ball high in the air and catches it again, he behaves as if he had solved a set of differential equations in predicting the, traje uh, the trajectory of the ball. He may neither know nor care what a differential equation is, but this does not affect his skill with the ball. At some unconscious level, something functionally equivalent to the mathematical calculations is going on. Now, Gigerenzer uses this in it as an example of sort of missing the point when it comes to heuristics. Now, again, when you're catching a ball, in order to solve that mathematically, you have to do a bunch of differential cal uh, calculations. But that's not what people actually do. In fact, Gigerenzer notes what we do to catch a ball is simply what he calls the gaze heuristic. That is, you look up at the ball, you find what angle it is in reference to your head, and then you run at a speed that is that keeps the ball at that same angle as you're moving. That is, you don't have to do any fancy differential equations. You just have to run at the ball uh, and make sure that it's about at the same place in your line of sight. Now, note a couple things about this. First off, when we're talking about, let's think about what it'd be like to design an optimal human to make good decisions. 
It would be uneconomical if we were to put, you know, advanced mathematical abilities just to catch a ball. That would be a big waste of space. Instead, again, in the, the idea of someone who's a proponent of ecological rationality, what actually goes on is that we have a bunch of different, a, a bag of tricks that we can use for this or that. And gradually, when you learn to play ball, you learn that this one heuristic, or you develop a heuristic based on your mental cap capacities, that actually does this task very, very well. You don't need any fancy mathematics. It's all heuristic. And this is the power for gigarenzer of heuristics. You can, they are very small, economical, but they can get a whole lot done as you gradually learn to use your adaptive toolbox of heuristics for different purposes. At that, I don't think that gigarenzer quite says this, but it's something that I will say because I think it's more or less true. I don't really see that there's a distinction between system one and system two. If you look at the details, you'll see that it's all granulated all the way. There's not a divide between heuristics and higher level thinking. In fact, the way I look at it personally is that higher level thinking is really just using a whole bunch of heuristics at once. Now, one example, those of you who subscribe to my YouTube channel, you might know that one of my most well-watched videos is on choosing a Linux distribution. And I actually talk about, in psychology, um, the idea of the paradox of choice. And the paradox of choice is the idea that when you are trying to use system two, when you are optimizing, you're trying to take into account every variable that's you know at, in reach to make a decision, like for example, choosing a Linux distribution, you become overwhelmed with that choice. Because first off, you can't converge when there are so many variables at play, all of which are you know, slightly different and not really comparable. Oh, does it use system D? Oh, what does it, what desktop environment does it install by default? What package manager does it have? You know, when you have so many different variables, it becomes very difficult to, I mean, there's not gonna be just one optimal solution. Sometimes you get confused by the decision. Sometimes it just becomes a little more difficult and you fall prey to what's called the paradox of choice. Now, this is how I view a lot of so-called system two. System two often ends up being us sitting down and not just running one heuristic, but running dozens and dozens of them, trying to take into account everything we know about the world. And there's a what's called a curse of dimensionality with this. As we th overthink things, as we think uh, think more and more about a particular problem, bringing in more and more variables into our mental model, it actually becomes impossible to make a decision. And sometimes we make a decision that's very bad or based on, you know, bad variables. So using, so the way I look at system two personally, again, I, I look at it as being kind of a, a just sort of longer-winded way of using your heuristics all together, bringing them all together, which sometimes can be a very good thing, but it can very easily go off the rails. You can overthink things, you can reach bad conclusions. Now, Gigarenzer, at least, I don't know if he'd give credence to this particular construal of System 2, but in his view, heuristics aren't worse than System 2 when making real-life decisions. In fact, again, part of the real world, actually to read out uh, something he has earlier in the first chapter, says, good decision-making in a partly uncertain word, world requires ignoring part of the available information and as a consequence, performing less complex, complex estimations because of the robustness of the problem. And if you think about this with the paradox of choice, if you think about something too rationally, if you are overthinking something, if you're taking in all these variables into your mental model to make some kind of conclusion, you will not only overload, but you'll pay attention to things which are mostly noise and not signal. Whereas if you just say, eh, I'm not gonna use a system D distro, that's important to me. Maybe it's not actually important to you, but maybe you'll just run with that. Uh, it becomes something that's much, it's a decision that's much more easy to make. So. And I'll say, in addition to this, those of you who are familiar with statistics might be familiar with the idea of overfitting a model. That is, making a model so close to the available data that it doesn't have any ability to predict anything else. 
Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you can just run with it. But uh, And the what's so bad about overfitting data is that when you have a model that too perfectly predicts what you already know, it becomes impossible to predict anything else. Now, the robustness of heuristics is that they are not overfitted. They're very imprecise sometimes. And this impreciseness sometimes means that they can be generalized to more and more circumstances. Now again, Gigerinzer's idea is not that we just have set heuristics that do X or Y or Z, but that we really have an adaptive toolbox of heuristics. And hey, if one doesn't work for this particular area, we can use this or that or the other, or we can put a little addendum on it. It's not that we're so rigid that we only have to use one. Now to flip the script a little bit, if you think about the narrow domains of formal logic, if you religiously follow through with a logical derivation, oftentimes you find yourself very unrigid when you're addressing the problems that we actually experience in the wild. I'm actually reminded of this little quote I have by Stephen Jay Gould right here, where he says, this is him speaking of the, uh, the Linda is a feminist bank teller question that we spoke about earlier. He says in response to that, I'm particularly fond of this example because I know that the statement is least probable, yet a little homunculus in my head continues to jump up and down shouting at me, but she can't just be a bank teller. Read the description. Stephen Jay Gould reads this problem and he follows so religiously his definition of what formal logic dictates should be true that the little voice inside of his head, which is actually a very well-reasoned homunculus who is simply noticing the obvious that in the actual uh, real-world circumstance, this sentence actually means something a little different than the literal you know, formal logic definition of what it means, but he can't follow that. He has to follow through, I, I guess, the almost religious sense in which formal logic dictates what has to be true or false. Actually, to, to give you another quote, this is from one of my favorite books out there, and that is Paul Feyerabend's Against the Method, which is worthy of its own episode, but he has this nice little quote on people who follow logic a little too far. This is on page 16. He says, just as a well-trained pet will obey his master no matter how great the confusion in which he finds himself, and no matter how urgent the need to adopt new patterns of behavior, so in the very same way a well-trained rationalist will obey the mental image of his master. He will conform to the standards of argumentation he has learned, then will adhere to these standards no matter how great the confusion in which he finds himself, and he will be quite incapable of realizing that what he regards as the voice of reason is but a causal after-effect of the training he has received. And this should sound just like Stephen Jay Gould talking about how, oh, well, I can't actually think that, you know, uh, statement B is more or less probable than statement A. That's logically impossible. But in real life, you know, Stephen Jay Gould should listen to his, you know, first system one reaction to this because there's truth in it. Instead, he's in the way that Feyerabend is talking about, he's following through this notion of logic that's alien to his actual senses and in real life isn't necessarily giving him better results. This drives home one of the core differences of assumptions between the heuristics and biases program and the ecological rationality program. And the idea behind it is both of them see similar data. They see what seems like human irrationality or a disjunct between human rationality and formal rationality. And the reflex of the heuristics and biases program, that is Kahneman and Tversky, is to say, well, formal reason is actually the real thing. We are deficient in some way. While the ecological rationality side, more like Gerd Gigerenzer says, no, actually, what we're doing makes a lot of sense. The irrationalities that we abide by, they make sense in their proper context. It's the formal logic that it, we shouldn't necessarily hold ourselves to. It's something different. Now, there is another question that I think is worth asking. We talked about where the adaptive toolbox comes from. Now, in ecological rationality, these heuristics, they exist in our mental repertoire, and we can use them for whatever purposes. We're pretty much free to do whatever and calibrate them to our particular purposes. But one question out there, if you have the heuristics and biases program, is why is it 
we have these heuristics that aren't really perfectly calibrated to what we're using them for, but why in that case do they exist? Why is it that we evolved with mental faculties that are, you know, maybe 90% okay, but they they don't really do what they should be? I mean, in terms of engineering, it wouldn't be too difficult to engineer some kind of heuristic machine that makes good statistical conclusions, theoretically. So, if that's the case, why is it that those biases and heuristics that we have, why are they miscalibrated in Kahneman and Tversky's view? Now, there are different interpretations to this. One book that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode is What Darwin Got Wrong by Jerry Fodor and Massimo Piatelli Palmarini. Now, it's an interesting enough book in itself. You can check it out. But Massimo, who's a big proponent of um, the heuristics and biases program. Uh, I know him personally since we're both at the University of Arizona. He's part of the linguistics department, as it happens. Um, he has a particular view of evolution that he spells out in this book. And the specific idea, the argument of the book generally, is that natural selection doesn't really exist philosophically in the same way that we understand it intuitively, or at least how it's explained. His view of evolution is such that oftentimes the driving factor in evolution is the simple interaction of simple engineering that results in emergent phenomena in evolution. That is, small genetic changes can compound in a very unexpected way to create very complex structures in the human brain, in the human body, or in any other creature's body. And Massimo's view of evolution is that really one of the driving forces, in fact, in language in particular, since we're in a linguistics department, and this is this is actually a very common view nowadays um, in linguistic minimalism, I suppose you could say, where language is supposed to be a complex trait that emerges from very small biological changes. Now, in Massimo's view, he views this as one of the more, and I suppose Jerry Fodor, the late Jerry Fodor's view as well, he views this as one of the driving factors in determining the actual mental, mental repertoire of humans. So his view, he as a big proponent of the heuristics and biases program, his view is that, yeah, we have a lot of things that are in our brain that are frankly irrational, or they, they don't really work. We, we have a bunch of glitches, or what he calls tunnels of the mind. He wrote a book named, um, well, in English... It's named something different. I want to say Inevitable Illusions, which uh, talks about the many ways in which our brain isn't perfectly suited for the world outside, which is partially related to the heuristics and biases program. But again, his point is we have a bunch of errors in our brain. That's his way of looking at it. And they have emerged due to complex interaction of simple genes that have created these very complex heuristics that produce very complex outcomes, but they ha it's not like they've been targeted individually by natural selection. It's not necessarily the case that we have been calibrated by selection in the way that we often think of it. So this is a particular, uh, this is a viewpoint that goes contrary to what's often thought of as neo-Darwinianism, where everything is selected for. Um, now, I will say this is, so this is Massimo's view. This is the view of a lot of people who are in the heuristics and biases program. They view it, they view us as having kind of evolutionary glitches, or at least this is a, a part of evolution that we have to come to grips with. Not everything in our mental repertoire is going to be perfectly suited for what they're dealing with. But for the ecological rationality viewpoint, it's not, a, they, either way, it doesn't really matter because the heuristics could be calibrated to some particular task, or they could just be something random in the brain. If you have the perspective of the adaptive toolbox, it doesn't actually make that much of a difference. But I just wanted to clarify that if you were a little confused of the evolutionary origins of heuristics for Kahneman and Tversky's view. Now, as we draw this podcast episode to a close, it's at least important to think about the, I guess, real-world ramifications of this dispute. Because it might seem like, okay, well, this is two different views of how human psychology works, how cognitive science might work, and maybe it's not necessarily mundane for real life. But I think there have been many ways in which the heuristics and biases program has had a lot of even political effects on society at large. Now, of course, heuristics and biases have created a field of 
behavioral economics, which seeks to do largely the same kind of thing. Again, it's less, it's it's not so much that I'm, I'm stating an opposition to studying where human rationality doesn't meet formal standards. I don't think that's a bad thing. In fact, I think it's a very good thing. And I think that the empirical outcomes of the heuristics and biases program have been very interesting and are very worth looking at for understanding the actual architecture of our brains. But despite that, if you run with the idea that this is some kind of terrible flaw that has to be mediated, sometimes you end up doing things that, uh, I don't know, might be a little premature. Nowadays, there's this thing out there. You may be familiar with this book called Nudge by Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler. And this is a book that puts forth what has sometimes been called libertarian paternalism. And it might seem like a contradiction, and it sort of is, but I think it's deliberately coined to sound that way. But what the idea of libertarian paternalism is, is ultimately, it's supposed to be informed by the heuristics and biases program, and comes to the table, to a political table, with the assumption that the unwashed masses, they're just broken, they're mentally broken in some way, and we have to fix them as social engineers. So Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler, I mean, they actually have, they actually had a lot of connections to the Obama administration. I want to say that Thaler had a had some kind of appointment. You'll have to look it up. I don't remember off the top of my head, but they were very closely involved with the Obama administration, even if not officially, intellectually. And they often came to the table with the ideas that, well, humans, when they're doing this or that economical decision, uh, you know, when they're not saving at the rate that we want, or if they're doing this or that, that's irrational, and we have to fix that. And so the, this, the idea of libertarian paternalism is not is basically jiggering the, uh, I guess, jiggering the circumstances in which people make decisions to force them into making decisions that you deem more rational. Now, some of this stuff is somewhat innocuous, or at least isn't harmful in ways that, you know, are obvious to me. This This could be something like forcing people to opt out of being an organ donor rather than opting into it which you can debate on whether or not that's good or something. But a lot of libertarian paternalism is based on this idea that fundamentally our rational senses cannot be trusted. And instead, we have to trust experts who have rational derivations as for why this particular human behavior is irrational. Now, again, I'm not dismissing this whole field nor saying that it's all bad, but I'm saying that you shouldn't necessarily jump from the conclusion that or jump from the the statement that humans don't follow formal logic to the conclusion that they have to be fixed. Now, a lot of the intuitions of ecological rationality is that the context of the actual decisions we make is not some kind of formal domain where we can decide who is smarter and who is rational, but in, in real life where there are uncertainties, where there are variables that our models aren't taking into account, and it is naive to make the assumption that some, some social designer can put forth all the incentives to get the correct you know, libertarian paternalist action out of all people. I, th- I think that's... Um, so I'm not saying that this kind of social engineering is always bad. I'm just saying that it's mostly bad or that uh, you shouldn't reach it with the uh, based on faulty assumptions about what is good and what is bad in human decision making. I think that my assumption, when, especially when diagnosing culture or diagnosing how people generally act, my assumption is not that uh, people generally are stupid. My assumption is that I don't adequately understand the behavior of people or the reasons behind what they do or the reasons behind culture or the reasons behind you know someone's economic transactions the the guiding assumption should always be i don't understand this maybe i should look into why it happens and the ecological rationality framework does that while the heuristics and biases framework again i'm not dismissing that it's made a lot of good empirical strides but it sometimes comes to the table with the assumption that well, Bayes' theorem is correct, or formal logic is correct, and if you fail to meet that standards, you are not only irrational, but you have to be fixed by good libertarian paternalistic government. But anyway, I hope this has given you a decent enough introduction to the Heuristics and Biases program. I recommend you read uh, Kahneman and Tversky's copious 
articles on different subjects and different experiments. They're all worth looking at. And of course, Rationality for Mortals by Gerd Gigerenzer. As I said before, I think I'm going to talk about this book again because uh, Rationality for Mortals, the first portion, is mostly on this heuristics and biases program, but the latter portion, which arguably is even better, touches on issues of statistics. That is specifically how statistics is serially misused in psychology, in cognitive science, in economics, or really actually just every field that isn't statistics out there nowadays. It's a very... Uh, so that that's going to be an episode sometime in the future. I don't know how soon. Depends on what my mood is. But I hope that you've gotten a decent enough view of all this. And of course, I have provided a brief reading list. And by the way, I think in the reading list is uh, something that I have written myself, which is going to be partially recapitulating the stuff you've already heard from me now, but might be worth reading just because it's relatively brief. That link is in the description or the comments. And... So anyway, that's about it. So anyway, hope you enjoyed this. If you have any questions, email me at luke at lukesmith.xyz. Donations at paypal.com slash lukemsmith. M is in mill. I, I don't know why I thought of that word. but uh, So that's about it. I hope you enjoyed it, and I will see you guys next time.